And let me invite you to turn in your Bible to the letter to Timothy, the first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy, chapter 4. You'll find it on page 1178 of the Pew Bible if you want to follow along there. It's 1 Timothy chapter 4, page 1178 and 1179 of your Pew Bible. Last time I was here, which I realized was a week ago because of a sudden illness, but last time we considered the work of pastoral ministry as it was described to us in verses 6 through 10 of chapter 4. In those verses, uh, maybe you remember, we, we talked about the sort of basic DNA of a true gospel minister. We, noticed, we noted together that he must be part teacher, part athlete, and part farmer. As a teacher, he is always looking for opportunities to proclaim the word. As Paul will say later, he must not actually allow himself to be distracted by any other calling. Timothy and Titus are expected to give themselves full time to this work without any distraction. And this portrait of a full-time worker in the word uh, universally has led the church right from the beginning uh, to acknowledge that there is a kind of elder, he's still an elder, but there's a kind of elder who can properly also be called pastor. That is a man who follows in the steps of Timothy and Titus by giving himself unreservedly and without distraction to the work of word proclamation. We said secondly that as he is a teacher, he is also in some sense to be an athlete. Paul, you might recall, uses throughout his letters, and really in this letter, the image of an Olympian. Timothy and Titus are to train themselves for godliness. Paul writes, quote, bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every way. Young as he is, Timothy is to set an example. Of course, he will not be perfect. Uh, no pastor is anywhere near perfect. But he must strive for real personal holiness. In the words of Matthew Henry, quote, those who teach by their doctrine must also teach by their life. Else they pull down with one hand what they build up with the other hands. The greatest teaching ministry will ultimately collapse if the pastor is not listening to and obeying his own sermons. Lastly, we spoke of the pastor as farmer. Jesus and Paul chose this image again and again to explain the work of ministry. The farmer toils, he works hard. And at the same time, the farmer's reward, the farmer's outcome of his labors is hidden for many months. He isn't working for the immediate results. He isn't living for the first quarter numbers to come in. In fact, the results of his ministry will not be clear until much, much later. Recent events, and I think scandals, even scandals that we've experienced as an evangelical community over the last several years, these are excellent reminders 
that a ministry cannot be properly judged by the short-term outward appearance. Now, if you had any reservations, and I, I hope you didn't, but if you had any reservations about that sketch of the biblical pastor as farmer, athlete, and as teacher, I'm confident that today's sermon and text will put those questions to rest in your mind. Paul is just so adamant about these things, and he repeats them so many times in the pastoral epistles and throughout his letters. All that is to say this, the Bible has not, the Bible has not left us in the dark about pastoral ministry. Thanks to God's word and its patient repetition, we can know, we can know what pastoral ministry is about and what we're to look for at a gospel minister. And we know what to pray for and how to pray for ministers of the gospel. But as, as I've said all along, this is not just about pastors or men in training for pastoral ministry. The lessons here are entirely relevant for every Christian in this room. More importantly, the portrait we are painting here in these passages is ultimately fulfilled only in Christ. So as we study the true gospel ministry and the true gospel minister, it is really Christ that we are ultimately led to. At best, at their very best, good pastors are just his messengers. Like a friend who carries love letters between an engaged couple. And yet, although that's all the minister does, all he's really doing, yet even that is entirely sacred. And so in our passage today, Paul will once again urge Timothy to embrace this calling with every fiber of his being. He is to devote himself to this unreservedly with real courage, love, and humility. Let's see how he is to do that. Please stand as we read verses 11 through 16 of chapter 4. First Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, Paul writes, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, indeed, because this is your word, our salvation depends upon it. If our hearts are not open to receive it, we will die, not just physically, but spiritually. 
for your word is life. And so we pray, Father, send forth the spirit of life, the spirit who hovered over the first creation. May he now hover over and in us so that we might receive the word with joy and be transformed into its image. This we pray, Father, and ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The verses in front of you this morning contain no less than 10 different commandments. In just six verses, 10 commandments, and each of the 10 is heavy with responsibility. So much so that we could easily do a sermon on each command. But then notice also that in the midst of all these commands, Paul also encourages Timothy to remember God's grace. Right in the center of this section, you'll notice from our reading, he, he tells Timothy to remember his ordination. Remember the prophecy and the laying on of hands and what happened to you. The grace that God so freely gave to you. Nevertheless, these ten commandments of ministry are imposing and can only be done in the spirit of God and through the gifts the Spirit gives. No one, as Paul reminds us in another place, no one is sufficient for these things. As if to make the whole section even more intimidating, especially for pastors, but certainly for us all, Paul ends the section by telling Timothy what is at stake here. Verse 16 reads, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Because, because Timothy's ministry is a ministry of God's word, because it's not a ministry of his own, but a ministry of God's word, it is therefore a ministry that will lead either to salvation or to damnation not only for himself, but for the congregation he serves. Now, as frightening as that might be for Timothy to hear, uh, for me to read, for any minister to read, we do need to be reminded nonetheless that the stakes cannot be any higher. To teach and preach God's word is to lay before people constantly the way of life and the way of death. It is a position of influence, either toward obedience or toward corruption. When I was uh, first ordained 16 years ago, I had no idea, uh, truly no idea, how many times I would be in this position to either call someone to real heartfelt obedience or to capitulate and let them follow their own inclinations. The stakes are high. The stakes are very high. And maybe this is why, maybe this is why there is a certain seriousness about pastors. Have you noticed this? Of course, pastors and elders should be able to laugh, and we especially need to be able to laugh at ourselves. But growing up surrounded by pastors and now living really the whole of my life surrounded by pastors, I've always felt that there was a certain seriousness, almost a little sadness about them all. 
It was only later when I became one that I really understood why. The calling is so great, the stakes so high, that over time it makes you a very serious person. Joyful, I hope, hopeful, hopeful, but also serious. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. Years later, when I moved here to New Jersey in this congregation, I saw the same kind of seriousness in the doctors and nurses here at the church. I saw that they too carry a kind of weight around with them. I came to understand that it's because they know how much depends on them. They know what is at stake in the exercise of their calling. And living year by year under that weight, they come both to love it and to be changed by it. It brings a kind of seriousness to them, a seriousness that no amount of joking and no amount of trained callousness can entirely hide. Now such is the very serious case of Timothy's ministry call. He's come to Ephesus as a young ordained man of God. His task is intimidating. Stand up to the false elders, set an example to everyone, preach the word constantly. This is the serious business of pastoral ministry. On the surface, all this would seem ridiculously impossible for a young man, if not for the promise Timothy carries within him, his ordination. Over the next two weeks, we will explore together the Ten Commandments of pastoral ministry given in these six verses. For this morning, though, we'll focus on three of them and how when kept, when these three are kept, these three commandments represent a faithful pastoral ministry. Well, you'll notice in your text, the first two commands come together, really, as a pair. Paul writes in verse 11, command and teach these things. Believe it or not, there's a lot in that little sentence. First, if you've been with us in our study, you know that these things is a reference to a set of teachings. So when Paul says, command and teach these things, he has a set of doctrines or truths in mind. Specifically, he's thinking of the good doctrine just mentioned in verse 6. Look again at what Paul writes there using this exact same language in verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. These things equals good doctrine. Or if you like, you can go back just a few more verses to that wonderful confessional hymn or poem that Paul recites for Timothy in verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Later on in this letter, Paul will call this the deposit, the deposit. 
as in Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Here's my point. All through his letter, Paul has been talking about a body of teaching, a group of truths. He has all kinds of names and designations, but what I want us to hold on today is that even at this very early stage, there was and there always has been a set of core Christian teachings. Yes, it's true that some doctrines were not fully worked out until years later. However, all the basics of our Christian faith can be found in the earliest New Testament works. Now, in speaking like this about these things and the doctrines of our faith, please do not get me wrong. Please don't take that too far in one direction. Christianity is indeed more than just a set of beliefs. It is a relationship. Jesus is really alive, and so it has to be a relationship. It is incredibly warm. It is incredibly fulfilling. It's totally different than the other religions of the world. If you're in Islam or you're in Buddhism, you're following a set of teachings, much as Christians are. But you don't have a relationship because there's not a resurrected person to have a relationship with. But in Christianity, we have that, of course, a real relationship with a living person. And so it's warm. There's a warmth to our faith. However, let's never use that. Let's never confuse ourselves and others by suggesting that Christianity is just a relationship. It is also a religion. It is also a set of beliefs and truths that we confess together. For example, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians wrote that if we Christians, if we Christians are wrong about the doctrine of the resurrection, we are the most pitiful people on earth. The most pitiful people. Do you see what Paul is saying there? Paul is saying if these things, the things commanded here are not true, our faith is in vain. In fact, we have wasted our lives. If spiritual experience matters, but truth does not matter, Timothy is wasting his time. He should just let the elders follow their spiritual instincts, their religious interests, explore other ideas. But that is not our faith. Our faith is and always will be a confessional faith. And that is why things are so serious here in Ephesus. There is and always will be in the church a desperate struggle, and there is right now, a desperate struggle to maintain the truth of the gospel. If you are even sort of casually following the news right now, you know that more than ever maybe, information and disinformation have become as important as guns and missiles. Control the message and you can control whole nations, whole populations. But the Bible tells us this is nothing new. Paul has already warned us that darkness, the powers of darkness, are heavily invested in disinformation, and they always have been. It's primary part of their strategy. It began in the Garden of Eden 
when Satan first worked his propaganda on us. And the spiritual information war rages ever since. And that is why truth and doctrine are so important. To win the battle in Ephesus, Timothy must command and teach these things, the truth about Jesus. And that's why Paul keeps repeating his command to Timothy. You must set these things before the people. You must guard this deposit. You must command. You must teach these things. So Paul is calling for the preservation of a body of truth, these things. But what does he mean when he tells Timothy to, in verse 11, command these things? Is Paul telling Timothy to become sort of a pulpit bully, to pound the pulpit and demand conformity, to be harsh, to be self-righteous? Or more disturbingly, a skeptic, I think a secular skeptic in our day, may wonder if we have here sort of the roots of violent movements like the Inquisition on a more personal level. Uh, many people in this room have been mistreated by a pastor or an elder who thought of himself primarily as a commander. Well, the good news is that the Bible cannot be twisted to allow for any of these abuses in just a few verses, Paul will tell Timothy to be utterly respectful in his ministry. In 2 Timothy, he will call for Timothy to exercise what he calls great patience with the people of the church. In the book of Corinthians, Paul worries about a man there who had been removed from the congregation by discipline. He's worried that he might be hurting and overcome with grief, and he urges the church to reach out to him in love. Above all, anyone who really studies the life and words of Christ cannot become that kind of bully leader. On a more basic level, though, the text here just does not allow for a bully. The word used here means to take a stand in Greek to urge, to insist, or even very literally to come alongside someone and speak to them. It can be translated, and it often is in your Bible, with the word exhortation. And remember, the context here is not us going out and commanding the world, our unsaved neighbors to obey, but what is especially to be happening in the church in fact, the truth is our neighbors, our unsafe family and friends, cannot obey the gospel without the gift of faith. So harshly demanding that they see things our way is futile. We can plead with them. We should plead with them. We should seek to educate them as we are able. We can't command that of them since they cannot respond in and of themselves. However, in the church, we all must, all of us, insist that the gospel be upheld and maintained without corruption or addition. Every community in the world operates with rules and boundaries. Every community in the world has things it insists upon. No community in our world is completely inclusive. Timothy Keller once asked his audience to imagine a woman Imagine a woman who serves 
as an officer on her local LGBTQ action committee. One day, the woman walks into the committee meeting and says, I've had a conversion experience, and I now believe that intimacy is only for a man and woman in the context of marriage. At best, says Keller, she'll be asked to immediately step down. Realistically, she will probably never be allowed in the building again, at least not without a lot of pressure. And yet, our society refers to that committee as inclusive and to our church as exclusive. Keller's point was not to be mean-spirited. In fact, asking her to step down from the committee makes sense, and as a Christian, she'd do that anyway. His point was rather that every meaningful committee has boundaries. Every meaningful community has boundaries. Every community has things it insists upon. It is inevitable. A community without boundaries has nothing to rally around and has no identity. Paul knows this. And so Timothy must at times insist, command. And that gentle but firm insistence is critical to this whole letter. That's really what this letter is about. So much so that if I had today to write a title to this whole sermon series, I might choose this verse, command and teach these things. It's a big part of why Paul wrote. The letter begins this way, chapter 1, third verse. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, Timothy, remain at Ephesus so that you may command, same word, certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And then again, as bookends, at the end of the letter, Paul says this, teach and command these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. As we'll see in the following sermons, Timothy was young. He was young. And he was a kind-hearted, gentle young man. And Timothy has always been and always will be, I think, the model pastor for Christians. And so it should be noted by us that Timothy's disposition was not confrontational. He didn't want to get into arguments just to get in them. He didn't want to start fights. He didn't start ugly arguments. But it's for this very reason that he is kind, that he does love people, because he isn't given to conflict, that Paul must urge him as a son to not back down from his duty. So Paul says, command these things. Now I realize the focus here this morning is pastoral leadership in the church. That's the context. The elders of the church and pastors of the church are to insist on the foundational gospel message. You as a congregation, though, should also insist that the gospel not be undermined or polluted in the ministry of your church. But I think there's an even broader application here for all of us in our life, even when we're outside these walls. Of course, we can't insist or command that our neighbors obey the gospel, command these things as an order for the church, for within the church. 
but we can and we must speak up with gentleness and humility outside the church. As God often does, I had to do that this week as I was writing this section unexpectedly. When your neighbor or someone you've just met says that all religions lead to the truth, that it doesn't matter who you pray to, it's just that you pray. In that moment, you breathe, take a breath, say a prayer, and with compelling love, urge the truth with real love, with real humility. That is the exhortation we bring to the world. We must all at some point urge these things. One of the things that makes it clear that Paul here does not have in mind a bully pulpit is the command he puts next to exhortation. Timothy must also engage in thorough teaching. It's not just insisting, it's following up with teaching. So Paul writes, command and teach these things. Teaching here is one of the great words of the New Testament in this letter. It contains within it the idea of discipleship and the title rabbi, which was used uh, by Jesus' closest friends. Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher. And the gospels allow us to glimpse some of the massive, extended conversations Jesus would have with his disciples. Think of his huge sermon on the mount, uh, loaded with wonderful insights. Alternatively, uh, think of how Jesus, think of how Jesus would use anything and everything to teach a point. He grabbed everything around him and made it into a lesson. The disciples would be at a wedding, a cup of wine in their hand, and suddenly it was a lesson about him. They would walk through a field or see a bush or observe the harvest. And all these ordinary sights would become for them in the ministry of Jesus, doctrine. They become lessons in the hands of Jesus. Whatever was at hand, Jesus was going to teach with it. It's no wonder then that in the Great Commission, Jesus ordered the apostles to make disciples, not just converts, but disciples of all the nations and to continue his teaching ministry. In fact, this is what Jesus said, make disciples of all nations, teaching them. And listen to how this reflects our text today, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. There you have those words. Teach all that I have commanded. And we might add, command all that I have taught. So once again, and not for the last time, Paul urges Timothy to teach the word, to make disciples, to contend for the truth by teaching it. I hope you see what Paul is calling for here. Paul here is calling for a sort of two-pronged attack against false teaching. On the one hand, exhort, that is, stand against, graciously but firmly insist that it stop. On the other hand, give people the real thing. Don't just oppose false teaching. Don't just rail against the errors of our day. Make sure that you're explaining why. Fully teach 
the truth. This applies, of course, to us all in one way or another. For example, parents. Parents who just oppose things and prohibit things, they make rules, but they never explain why they're going to have problems. Kids like us all, they need the reasons. They need the thinking behind it all. We need to be taught the truth, to be clothed and settled in the truth. So many of the ministries of our church really are designed with this in mind, not just to oppose our culture system, but to present to ourselves, to our children, to one another and to the world, an alternative, a scriptural alternative that is lovely and orderly. You probably have heard this old illustration, but it's old because it's so good and it's so worth repeating. When training men and women to detect forged money, forged money, fake money, the government teaches them first to know in every detail the real thing, to master the look and feel of true currency. The idea is simple. If you know the real thing thoroughly, you will immediately notice when something is missing. You will spot the forgery. So these things must be taught, not just commanded. To round out this section, the third commandment here, and the essential ingredient, and the one that really holds it all together, this commanding and teaching must be done by a man who also models the message in his own life. Verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth. Here's the command, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Or we might add there, the word purity there is sexual chastity. On the face of it, this seems like an impossible command, really. How can Timothy control what others think of him. Paul tells him, let no one do this to you. But we all know we can't control people. Is, is Timothy here then responsible for the prejudices of others? As is often the case with the Bible, if we keep reading, I think Paul becomes clear again. By setting an example, Timothy will eventually silence his detractors. In the culture of the time, the culture when this was written, Greeks and Jews viewed age and wisdom as, as just highly valued matters. Much as we today tend to go the other way, and I think overvalue what is new and what is young. In that time, it was very unusual for a man of Timothy's age, a man in his late 20s, possibly early 30s, to have a position of eldership in the church. Even today, I would say, if you look at our, our session, you can see this. It's very unusual, very rare for a man that young to exercise uh, that kind of authority in the church. Paul is concerned then here that the false teachers will use Timothy's youth as a criticism to silence his message and undermine his ministry. In fact, writing to the Corinthians, Paul uses the exact same words. And he tells that church, the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16, not to despise Timothy, same language, but to help him. Jesus uses the same word to urge his audience not to despise the little ones, 
The disciples could not imagine that the laying hands on infants that Jesus was doing was important, as important as teaching adults. They saw children as a distraction from Jesus' urgent ministry. In a similar way, the church in Ephesus was tempted to judge Timothy by his appearance. But notice, Timothy's response was not to become angry or to shrilly demand his rights. Because every wise person knows, uh, teenagers, you especially have to hear this, every wise person knows that if you truly want respect, you cannot demand it. Rather, Timothy is to silence these critics with his life. So young people, if you want the respect of your parents, don't ask for it. Live it. And that's exactly what Paul as an older man is telling his son, Timothy. And the picture here is, is of complete devotion, isn't it? Paul says, do it in speech. Do it with your mouth, what you say. Do it in your conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity or chastity. Now put this all together with me, because the picture is, I think, so lovely uh, when it's finally together. A true gospel minister urges the truth. He stands for it. He commands it. He also is a teacher who delights to share all he knows. But what makes all this work, when it becomes warm, when it actually becomes plugged in, if you will, is when, by God's grace alone, the man becomes conformed to his message. When the man and the message become one. It's hard to turn away from a ministry like that. It's hard to turn away from a man like that. Whether we're talking about a pastor or talking about anyone in this room, when message and life are singing in harmony, people will stop to listen, to listen. I can't remember, uh, for certain anyway, any of the hundreds of sermons I heard my father preach morning and evening every Lord's Day my entire childhood without exception. But you know what I do remember? What I can never forget, that there was an irresistible harmony between message and life in my home. He was a great man. He was a great pastor. His influence even today is amazing. In fact, if you listen carefully, all the podcasts you listen to of Reformed ministers, if you listen carefully, you will find that every minister in the Reformed community today considers him to be a mentor and a guide and looks up to him. His name is Robert Murray McShane. And it would be wrong to leave this text without mentioning him. McShane is known for many things but especially for his incredibly heartfelt words that are often quoted when men preach this passage. Here's three things that McShane said that are often quoted around this text. McShane wrote, A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. And then he said, The greatest need of my people is my own holiness. And maybe best of all, my favorite of all, what a man is on his knees before God, 
that he is and nothing more. All the commentaries, all the pastors quote him. They quote these phrases and they're wonderful. But I want to share with you another quote from Robert Murray McShane. Something he wrote in his diary that explains his influence and the way his ministry continues to this day. Sometime in the 1830s, on July 8th of one of those years, I don't know which, he writes this. He's writing his prayers out. I said to the Lord, I will preach. I will run. I will visit. I will wrestle. McShane records the Lord's reply. No, thou shalt lie in thy bed and suffer. Robert was sick his entire ministry and died at the age of 30. These quotes, this power, this enduring influence, a revival in Scotland, it came from a man who never became an experienced pastor, but died at the age of Timothy. But this is the glory, the possibility of a man or a woman who, by the grace of God, joins these three commands together, who stands for the truth, teaches the truth, and then is beautifully conformed to it, even in intense suffering and weakness. He or she will be hated, but never ignored. Heaven and earth cannot ignore such a ministry. May God grant it here, and may God grant it in all of us. Amen. Let's pray. Indeed, Father, we pray that from this pulpit and in the pews and in our homes, your word would be urged and exhorted. Your word would be treasured and upheld. Your word would be taught in all fullness and that all this would be lighted up by real and true practice of your word, that we, by your grace, would be conformed to the image of Christ, and then that that work in us would pour forth into the life of all those around us. Thank you for these three commands, our Father, and thank you for the way you are using them in our lives. We pray continue to do so, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.